We are now entering the very heart of the book of Romans with uh, chapter 8. <clears throat> I'd, I'd like to spend more than one week with chapter 8, and so if you'll bear with me today, I'd like to give us a kind of uh, a broad introduction to this very important chapter in the book. Uh, we've talked that really with the way that we interpret Romans is going to result in two alternative Christianities. Um, what is ultimately at stake then, can we identify what the universal nature of the predicament, what's our problem, uh, and the manner in which Christ saves? I believe that in alternative Christianities, alternative understandings of Romans, they're going to talk about these two things in very different ways. My understanding is that with Romans 6 to 8, and especially chapter 8, the theme of the book then, that the defeat of death and of a death-dealing lie through new life in Christ comes to a head. It's culminating. Um, The overall theme guiding Romans is the practical nature of salvation. And in Romans 8, it's going to address then this practical salvation. It's going to describe a different kind of human subject than we just talked about in chapter 7. New life in Christ is not simply then a promise for the future, but it is an ontological or different kind of being an alternative subject, and that subject then is no longer oriented to death, uh, but it is, uh, we are oriented to, to life in Christ. So chapter 8 marks the transition in Paul's argument to the description of this new subject, where 7-7 and following focus primarily on the isolated individual with the repeated reference to I, or I myself, chapter 8 speaks of a corporate identity in the Holy Spirit. And this will have cosmic implications. That is, being in Christ Jesus uh, in 8.1 then culminates the creation in 8.19 itself waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. The Holy Spirit does not appear in chapter 7. Uh, but is thematic uh, throughout uh, chapter 8. It's mentioned 19 times, uh, or the Spirit is mentioned 19 times, um, and is really the head of each section of the chapter. And as we'll come, I'll describe that it's in Romans 8 that each of the persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, each are then, their work is described, and who we are to be found in God then is in and through a participation in the the Trinity, and how we participate in the Trinity is laid out in uh, chapter 8. Chapter 7 focused on the dynamics of death and the body of death. Chapter 8 counters each of the Pauline categories uh, that he addressed Uh, with an alternative. You know, Paul talks about the I. uh, But this I is an I given over to despair. Who will rescue me 
from this body of death. In chapter 8, the despair gives way to hope. In verse 24, he says, This hope is focused not on what is seen, but on the unseen. And what is unseen is actually Christ Jesus. In verse 29, he says, We are being brought into conformity to the image of the Son, which is Christ. Uh, It's a reconstitution of the subject. The beginning of the chapter, the law of life, you know, the law of sin and death is replaced with the law of life and the spirit. And this is going to result in freedom from slavery to fear. And, you know, we're in chapter 7. God is only there as lawgiver in chapter 8. In verse 15, Paul says we can cry out, Abba, Father. That we are reconstituted as children of God. We've entered into the family of God. The body of sin in 6.6, the body of death in 7.24 is displaced in the resurrection life of the Spirit, which is what uh, 8.10-11 is describing. The work of the resurrection as we walk now in new life in Christ. Don't get the, the idea here that this is a departure. You know, Paul will talk about sin in the flesh But the redemption in Christ is not a departure from the material body. But he's talking about in 8.23, he specifies this is the redemption of our bodies. This is the resurrection, uh, a bodily resurrection. It's the redemption of the material cosmos. Verse 21. So Paul in chapter 8 addresses each of the categories laid down in chapter 7. The law of sin and death, uh, the eye, the body of death. And chapter 8 can be read then as Paul's counter to and resolution to the problem of the dynamics of the drive, we might call it, toward death, the death drive. So I believe all this is summed up in the first verse. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free or set you free from the law of sin and death. He's going to describe this in some uh, detail, but I almost feel like we have to say again what it is that we're being delivered from and in order to encapsulate what's happening in chapter 8. Chapter 7 and chapter 8 stand in sharp contrast to one another. That he's described then one form of life controlled by desire and deception Uh, that we've said Paul connects this then to the original uh, deception in the Garden of Eden that, you know, when Eve, if we think about the nature of desire, that desire is really the loss of life. It's the trading of the tree of life for a panting afterlife, the loss of breath, the word breath, the word life, the word tree of life, all the same word in Hebrew. And that's precisely what desire is. As Paul describes it, you know, this that I did not know what it was to desire. I did not know what it was to covet apart from the command. And so if we read, uh, if, if we fail to, to, to get the point that chapter 8 is the resolution to the problem in chapter 7, uh, we're going to miss what salvation is and we're going to miss what sin is. And I'm not 
This is not just a theoretical problem. Many forms of Christianity do not understand that chapter 7 is what we're saved from. It's not what we're saved to. That agonistic struggle, that picture of sin, uh, you know, inhabiting us and controlling us. That's not the Christian life, that's the non-Christian life. In chapter 8, we're going to be able to walk as Christ walked. We're going to be able to, to put on righteousness. We're going to be able to have life in Christ. But in chapter 7, that's precisely what's missing, is the capacity to do what we would, the capacity to put on righteousness. That Paul describes the whole dynamic as the body of death. Who will rescue me from this body of death? So, uh, the way that we might think of what Paul is describing, both, you know, he's referencing Genesis and he's referencing the law, but in other places in, in, in the New Testament, that this world constituted uh, by deception and death in John is a cosmos, the cosmos of darkness, uh, the world of darkness. Uh, and this world operates according to its own principalities and powers, is the phrase Paul uses. It functions according to, as the communion meditation, the wisdom of this world. It has its own wisdom, its own logic. Uh, it constitutes human experience outside of Christ so that even our basic drives, our basic desires are constituted as a part of this world. I'm saying something very simple here. That outside of Christ there is an alternative world that is all-encompassing. It's a holistic world and when we are found in Christ we enter into a different world. That it's reconstituted in Christ. It's Everything is made new. That our thinking, our ethics, our you know, very nature of a desire is made new. And that's what's going to be described in chapter 8, is this new world. Uh, a way, and I don't mean to dwell on the negative here, but uh, I think we need to get the negative uh, clearly in mind to understand the nature of the answer. The nature of the deception uh, is such that we can narrate everything from the perspective of chapter 7 or the p- perspective of this fallen desire. Maybe we could, an easy way to do it is a kind of if only, you know. Uh, the idea is there's always something missing, some control, and this thing that is missing is the controlling factor in our lives. If only I had a million dollars then my life would be different. If only I had better parents. If only I had uh, different children. Or if only, you know, you could go on and on. Uh, We were talking in Bible study, you know, if only Wile E. Coyote could catch the roadrunner, then his world would be complete. Uh, We could could narrate all of theology, uh, all of history that way. If only Constantine had not ruined it for us. If only... Uh, Augustine or Anselm or Aquinas. We can narrate philosophy that way. If only we could attain to the forms. If only Descartes had never gone into that warm room. If only we could attain to the Kantian noumena. I believe this is the story. We can narrate the story of religion in the same way. If only we could cease desiring. If only uh, we could attain 
an ecstatic experience. If only we could have the beatific vision. And so what is described in 7, there's always this gap. There's always something missing. There's always uh, an absence. And in a sense, this is what idolatry is describing. That idolatry is about attaining, you know, what is the idol? Paul says the idol is nothing. Guess what? Every sophisticated idolater knows that. They know that the idol, in fact, is representative of an absence, of an absolute transcendence. But it's exactly this kind of reified nothing that the idolater, that which is unattainable, sets out to get. And of course, you can never obtain the object represented there. It is always an exponential, a growing desire. Thus, people will sacrifice their children to this idol. So I'm afraid that sometimes we miss the problem. We sometimes read uh, the Old Testament in the form of a kind of idolatry in which we picture God as at an infinite distance from us, and we read idolatry as bringing God down. But the way I've just described that, that's not what's happening. This is a misunderstanding, I think, of the Old Testament. Is God absent? Is God you know, absolutely transcendent? No, we find God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. We find the three men appearing to Abraham. We find God who led Egypt, or led, not Egypt, they led Israel out of Egypt. Um, But at Sinai, God is too close. They say, Moses, you go talk to God. The God of the Old Testament is not a God who is absent, but who is too close, too present. And so when Moses is talking to God on Sinai, what's Aaron doing? He's molding that golden calf. There is the idolatrous tendency that is to set God at a distance to have a God that we can control. Uh, As we talked about it this morning, that, you know, we would posit some eternal mystery of, you know, this, oh, where did that calf come from? He came out of the fire mysteriously. We don't know where he came from. That is almost the, I mean, that's the idolatry and that's the danger that we would trade the God who would be with us, the God who would walk with us for a God who is distant. Who, and in Christianity, there is the same danger that we've done the same thing in the history of Christianity in Fusing a Greek Aristotelian uh, notion, you know, in in uh, the whole idea of the unmoved mover, um, has become very much a part of Christian doctrine. Uh, well, is God the unmoved mover of the God of the Bible? No, He's the God who, in the beginning, creates. He's the God who is fashioning a world in which He can commune with us, and that's fulfilled then in Christ Jesus. So, if we don't get that our, our tendency then is in our sin to put God at a distance, to create a gap, to create a mystery, where the danger is we will do with Christ what we would do with an idol. 
that we will make Christ one more idol in which we read a gap into God himself. Christ Jesus is God with us. He's Emmanuel. Here is the the final uh, culmination of the revelation that we have in the Old Testament. And that's what I think is unfolding in chapter 8. That the overcoming of death is a dispelling of the mystery of the lie. Uh, New life in Christ is not simply a promise for the future but we have an alternative life. New life in the Spirit through Christ by the Father. I just said all three persons of the Trinity. Life in the Trinity, I believe, is the subject of chapter 8. And so let me just, in conclusion, this is a long conclusion, uh, but describe then what it, that will describe all of chapter 8 in terms of a Trinitarian work, the work of the Trinity. Um, let me restate the title. There's new life in the Spirit through Christ by the Father. And we are participants then in this relationship. So in 8.2, we have the law of the Spirit of life, that life is equated with the work of the Spirit. What is the gift of the Holy Spirit? Is it speaking in tongues? Is it, you know... The various no the, the the gift of the Holy Spirit is life is new life. Um, Paul's question in seven twenty four you know who will rescue me from this body of death? Well, he does that. He says the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Here is the rescue from death, the new life we have. Christ has defeated. Death in his own death. He's exposed the deception of the grave of death as being an absolute. Um, that Christ's death has founded a new human subject, and this subject then is the, the uh, has life in the spirit. Uh, he describes that the fear of slavery under the law of sin and death. Uh, which he describes as another law, that is this other law, the law of sin and death, is now voided with all its various workings. The punishing effects of this law, the condemnation of seven, the fear is undone. Um, That the Holy Spirit has ushered in the law of life, an alternative to, I believe, you know, you, you can sum up all of the law, not to say that the law is sin, Paul says, God forbid, but in our sin, we would reduce the law then to the law of sin and death. And so the work of the Spirit is that he's the source of life. Death is what is wrong, and the gift of the Spirit is the gift of life. Um, we might say that chapter 7 is a kind of living death, And chapter 8 describes life in the Spirit, which sums up the difference which which Christ makes. The body, Paul says in verse 8 or verse 10, the body is dead due to unrighteousness, but the Spirit is life, and this is God's righteousness. We've talked about the word righteousness. We are set right. We are made right. What's wrong? Here, 
subject to death. How are you made right? You have new life. Although the body is dead, Paul says, because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So the spirit is God's righteousness. The spirit gives us resurrection power. He says in 8.11, he will give life to your mortal bodies. That if there is a real world material resurrection, you put to death then the deeds of the body, the life and the flesh, because you have resurrection life. Paul says the body is dead because of sin in 8.10, but the spirit is the counterpower of life. So the spirit gives us the righteousness of God, the promise of life and the law, and law's righteous decree of life have been fulfilled in the spirit. Sometimes I think we, with the Holy Spirit, we get... We think of the Holy Spirit as the most abstract and disengaged. But actually what's being described in chapter 8 is the Spirit enables us to put on the practices of the Christian life. The Spirit enables us to walk as Christ walked. Um, In verse 9, this is what... Paul says, you, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the spirit. That is the spirit, uh, he, he says immediately after this, enables us to walk as Christ walked. We walk not according to the flesh in 8.4, but according to the spirit. Um, we, uh, this walk is characterized by, in all of its phases by the mindset of Christ and uh, the hope of of being in Christ. The other thing that the work of the Spirit in chapter 8 is pictured as doing is that we realize our adoption as the children of God. So through the adoption as sons, the Spirit enables us to cry, Abba, Father, verse 15. And he helps us in our weaknesses and through prayer by interceding, verses 26 to 27. So the Spirit is not the disengaged, you know, uh, abstract person of the Trinity. The, the Holy Spirit is the most concrete presence of God with us, enabling us to put on the practices of the Christian life. And the Holy Spirit is the difference then that ultimately we live out uh, we're no longer subject to a kind of living death, but uh, life in the face of death. Uh, the I, Paul says, has died. I have been crucified with Christ. Uh, we might describe what is death? Uh, death is alienation. Death is separation. What is the, the work of the Holy Spirit? Binding us to God. We cry, Abba, Father. Binding us to one another in and through the body of Christ, that we each are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. How are we given that gift? Are we given, do we experience the gifts of the Holy Spirit individually or corporately? Where do we realize the fullness of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Only as the Spirit binds us together in the body of Christ, right? So I think we often get the idea that in other words, if we go fall back into that, you know, the uh, 
Faith told me not to use the word perverse. Uh, uh, unusual, uh, different, bad Christianity. Uh, <laughs> um, that we will tend to think of the gift of the Holy Spirit as my private gift. And we have some sort of ecstatic experience uh, with the Holy Spirit. But I think actually it's different that the gift of the Holy Spirit is given to us corporately. And that gift is channeled to us through other people in the body of Christ. God's gift to us comes to us through other people, through the the corporate body. Then, well, uh, throughout chapter 8, the work of Christ, of course, is the mediating work. Uh, His life and death defeat sin and death. Christ's death is pictured as exposing and reversing the lie of sin. And chapter 8 describes how the identity of death in sin is displaced by the identity of life. So Christ, you know, we often hear people say this, that Christ's death defeats death. But can we say exactly how? How does it do that? Well, once we understand that death is the form of life outside of Christ, that people's lives are controlled by this absolute that is posited, and then Christ exposes that, not, you know, it's not an absolute that the enemy then controlled it as some sort of um, door or mystery or uh, it, it, the, uh, it, it is the fear of death in, as pictured in Hebrews. So the punishing effects of the law of sin and death are finished. And that's the announcement in chapter 8. The condemnation of chapter 7, that living death, is undone in Christ. So the law of sin in my members, in 7.23, in the flesh, sin that dwells within me. That's all been undone. And the place then from which sin works is the flesh. Now we can't misunderstand what Paul means uh, by the flesh. He does not mean that the body or that material reality is bad but he's saying that it's in and through this alienation from ourselves in which we would separate be absent you know uh, the alienation from God from one another is one that we take up within our own flesh and so the reason there is now no condemnation is because God has dwelt with sin in the flesh and provided new life for the body So the resolution is not more separation. Oh, you die and go to heaven. No, the resolution is that you are reconciled with the body of Christ and your own body then will be raised with him. There's reconciliation that works out bodily. Um, Those in Christ experience death, the death to sin and the new life which he provides. Um, the, the sentence of death is passed on all uh, who are in likeness to sinful flesh, Paul says in verse uh, 3. So those who are found in his likeness through baptism, he's already described in chapter 6, will experience the death to sin rather than the death by sin. Right? Those are the, the two choices. Uh, in 8.3, he describes Christ as being the sin offering. And the sin offering then was a very particular kind of offering 
that is really addressing the ignorant or unwilling sin that I think is what is the problem in chapter 7. Paul says, I do what I do not want to do. You know, the, the I who does not know and does not will what he does, that's the sin that Christ addresses. He, why, do, why don't you know what you do, Paul? Why don't we know what we do? Because we've been deceived. Christ uh, exposes that lie. So I don't believe that Christ just dies you know, for a general wrongdoing. There's a very specific sin that creates a very specific kind of rebellion, a very specific kind of deception, uh, a very, uh, you know, we can identify the nature of the human subject that is there in chapter 7 and undone in chapter 8. So the sin that works through deception, through ignorance, that's the sin that brings about disobedience. Paul says that the one who is subject to uh, sin is hostile to God in his mind. And he can only be hostile to God. He's obedient then to a kind of uh, uh, law of sin and death. So the law that he's following by its very nature is one of rebellion. Making obedience impossible. But obedience is now possible because that law has been displaced in Christ Jesus. So... The work of Christ then is the work of salvation, the work of redemption, the work of saving us from slavery, the work of bringing us the truth. And we can describe then the work of the Father. The whole action comes from God. God is the one who sends his Son. God is the one who destroys sin and brings life through the Spirit. God is the one who's passed judgment on sin and brought condemnation. So that, you know, in chapter 5, death reigned from the time of Adam. But now God has, in 8.3, condemned sin in the flesh of Christ. So that it can no longer deal out death by deception. So the Father is the primary agent who subjected, Paul says in verse 20, the creation in hope. The God the Father is the one who makes, in 8.28, all things work together for good. To those who love him. God the Father is the one who has foreknown and predestined those he called. Verse 29. He's the one who has justified and glorified those he's called. So the communion is in Christ Jesus. We've been set free from the law of sin and death. Um, This is carried out by the Father. Who gives us his spirit of life. So that those who suffer with him will be glorified together with him. Uh, That who died and was raised and intercedes so that nothing, Paul says, can separate us from the love of God. So, in chapter 8 is everything, in a sense. Here is the work of the Trinity here is the, 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 the Trinity is this communion of persons. And as Christians, we've joined this community in which the new humanity walks and their mindsets have been changed. They've realized sonship and they have a saving hope. So we might describe this hope as set on a life no longer threatened by death 
but on a process of self-realization that is continually renewed in line with, with the future. We're learning to walk as Christ. Let's sing our hymn.